If you've been keeping track of the liturgical calendar, you might know that we are in a time called Easter Tide. This is a time between Easter and Pentecost when we still celebrate and remember Jesus' resurrection, his visits with the disciples, and eventually his ascension into heaven. Today, specifically, is the third Sunday of Easter, or the third Sunday in Easter Tide when traditionally we recall Jesus appearing to his disciples for the first time in the upper room. You will remember that the women came to the tomb and they found that it was empty. And there were, at least in Luke's gospel, there were two men there who told the women, he is not here, he is risen. And at the same time, Jesus met disciples on the road to Emmaus and broke bread with them and they saw that it was him. So today we're not celebrating or remembering necessarily Jesus appearing to just any disciples, but specifically the 12 in the upper room. So our celebration, our Eastertide celebration, continues into Pentecost when we celebrate the birth of the church. This is also a time when we seriously contemplate how the events of Holy Week and the resurrection impact how we live and work as God's people. This time when Jesus revealed himself risen to the apostles really sets the tone for the rest of their ministry, the rest of church history. But it's all based on his work and his life, Jesus' work in life, especially during Holy Week, Passion Week. Just to recap, you'll remember Jesus' first entrance into Jerusalem, Palm Sunday. It was a triumphant entrance. They were welcoming a king. Palm branches and coats were laid on the road. They thought that this was the Messiah, the one who would overcome all adversary, would overcome the Roman government, and would save and redeem the people of Israel to establish the kingdom of God what they would have thought of sort of as the state of Israel, the people of God, and he would be their king. And we also remember Jesus preparing for the Passover and eating the Passover meal with his disciples. It was in this meal that he instituted the Lord's Supper that would be a sign and a seal of his new covenant, the covenant of his blood. This was also when he washed the feet of the disciples and showed that this is what their ministry would be marked by, humble service. Then we move to Jesus' agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. He struggled in his humanity with the task that he was about to undertake, so much so that it was said that he sweated drops of blood. He prayed, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. He knew that the cup of God's wrath was coming against him, for he had always known this. He had given himself to this work, and yet in his humanity he still said, Father, take this from me if it be your will. If there is any other way, let us do it that way instead of this cup passing to me. And yet... He said, not my will, but yours be done. 
And that very night, he was betrayed by one of his closest friends, Judas. He was brought before the Sanhedrin and eventually Pilate in a false trial, in an unfair trial where false testimony was given against him. One who was the most innocent, who had nothing on his record, was condemned falsely. He was taken, beaten, spit upon, his clothes divided, and he was hung on a cross. The nails entered his hands, more like his wrists, and his feet. He was deserted by the disciples, forsaken by God. You can remember the cries of agony that came from the cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He died and was buried and was in the tomb for three days. During this time, of course, the disciples thought that this was the end. They had seen many messianic characters rise up and be put down, and the movements that were started vanished. They were afraid, and they did not know what was next. As you may remember, they hid in the upper room. However, the women who followed Jesus had the courage to go to the tomb. They brought spices to tend to the body of their Lord. When they got there, they did not find the tomb that they had left merely days before, but they found it empty. And the declaration was given to them, he is not here. He is risen. These women, along with, as I said, the disciples on the Emmaus Road, ran to the disciples in the upper room and told them what they heard and saw, that the the Lord is risen. He is not dead. But they did not believe. They doubted in their hearts and said, how could this be? We don't see dead men come back. Dead men stay dead, don't they? And it was in that moment that Jesus himself appeared to them with the simple words, peace be with you. They thought he was a ghost. Because, of course, again, dead man don't come back from the dead. He must be a spirit of some kind, right? No. He was flesh and bone. He showed him the marks in his hands and in his feet, and he said, do you still not believe? Do you still not believe it is I come from the dead like I told you I would? And just to make everything clear, he asked if they had something to eat, because we all know that ghosts don't eat anything. So he he ate a fish. This is my case for Jesus being a pescatarian. (laughs) That's just a little joke, as you know. So they still doubted. And even when he showed them these signs, they were enraptured in joy. As it said in the scripture, in their joy they still doubted. So instead he turned from the physical signs to his own words, for they would know him by his words. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, 
that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. All of this, from Palm Sunday to Good Friday to Easter Sunday, it all had a purpose. It was not for naught, but it was foretold in times past in the Hebrew Bible, what we call today Hebrew Bible, The prophets prophesied about him. Moses pointed to him. The Psalms declared his glory. And so Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. His suffering and his death was foretold. It had a purpose. It pointed to a greater reality, the kingdom of God coming into the world. And this kingdom was marked by repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Arguably, three of the most significant and essential concepts in the Christian faith are sin, repentance, and forgiveness. However, in today's world, these three terms, these concepts, are also the most misunderstood. They've been twisted and distorted by movements, by people who seek their own, their own power in this world and have twisted and uses these terms that we're supposed to be freeing to enslave. So for the rest of our time, my time this morning, I want to dig into these concepts and through a series of systematic denials and affirmations, we will begin to see a more biblical understanding of sin, repentance, and forgiveness. Now, this might seem a bit technical, so I'll ask you to bear with me. It's technical because it is so essential to how we live and work in the world as God's people. We must get these concepts right. So first, sin. Sin is not simple ignorance. Sin is not the making of mistakes. Sin is not a mere inclination towards doing bad things. Sin is much deeper and insidious. Our culture, and I fear our churches, are often soft on sin. We see it as a state of mind that needs to be overcome, that we're just out of alignment with the way that God wants us to live or that our priorities are out of focus. Often our confessions of sin that I have found use this language of out of focus, as if we just need to, by our own willpower, overcome these things, and then we can be made right. We confess mistakes and wrong thinking while ignoring the root problem and the insidious nature of our own brokenness. This is a small view of sin, 
and it ignores the problem and opens the door to mere excuses and a blaming of external forces. If you remember last week, Jenny's sermon, she preached on Ezekiel. She reminded us that the exiled Israelites blamed their parents for their situation because it was their sin, it was their wrong. That's why we are in this situation. And though that was true, they were ignoring the very sin that they were perpetuating, the exact same sin of their uh, forefathers and mothers. The excuses continue. Even today, even this week, even this month, the excuses continue. He was just having a bad day. I thought it was somebody else. I was reaching for the taser, not the gun. These excuses only perpetuate and even validate the sin behind them. It's not mere mistakes, but something deeper, something that we must face both as individuals and as a society that's underrunning everything. Now these, you you must know what I'm referencing. These might seem extreme examples and we would not do this. But these are merely examples of the same ways that we think in dealing with our own brokenness and with our own sin. So, we've taken on what sin is not. So what then is sin? 1 John 3, verse 4. Everyone who commits sin practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. So in this, John tells us that sin has to do with breaking, transgressing, or not living up to God's commands. God, the author of creation, the ruler, Lord, and sovereign of all things, the holy God, creator and sustainer of our very being, gave commands, gave a way of life according to God's own character. Here, when we're talking about lawlessness, we're not talking about civil laws that we must maintain, but we're talking about God's laws, his commands for how to live and work in the world. Of course, we can see these most perfectly, I think, in the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. But these laws, these commands, are not arbitrary. We often think, and I hear often in our culture, that why would I follow a God that gave just arbitrary commandments? These have nothing to do with me. The reality is is that these commands are an extension of God's own character, God's justice, God's righteousness, God's truth, God's fairness. And as his creatures, as his subjects, those who are made in his image, in God's image, we are subject to follow these commands. For it is perfect in God's sight. Now, of course, like I mentioned, the Ten Commandments, but also as people of the New Covenant, 
we also take on Jesus's extensions of those and interpretations of those commandments. Thou shalt not murder. And Jesus says, if you even have anger against a brother or a sister, you are guilty of murder. Not commit adultery. Jesus says, if we even look with another with lust in our eyes, we are guilty. God gave us these commands because he wanted us to be a holy and a righteous people. 1 Peter 1.16, for it is written, and this is God saying this, you shall be holy, for I am holy. We are to live according to these commands in perfect union and communion with our God. But we have never kept these commands. We not for a minute have we kept perfectly any of these commands. The God who is holy does expect us to live according to these commands, but we have never kept them. We practice lawlessness. But I also want to stress that sin is not the mere action of breaking commands, but it is a deeper disposition behind the act, a condition of the heart. The 18th century preacher Timothy Dwight defines sin as an act of bold and impious rebellion against God's righteous government. Sin shows gross and dreadful ingratitude to God's goodness and mercy. Sin is an impious disregard for God's perfect and glorious character. It is a heart condition, something that has taken over our very being. It is not merely an inclination to doing wrong, but it is rebellion in our own hearts. Now that sounds horrible, right? That we would be rebels against God. This isn't a conscious thing. Our very sin keeps us from seeing how we are not living according to God's commands, keeps us from seeing the fullness of our communion and union with God the Father. The sin has broken communion with our God and with others. Our relationship is not perfect as it should be because of our very sin. We, as God's people, should be in perfect communion and fellowship with one another, but that same sin keeps us from one another and from God. God wrote the law on our hearts, Romans 2. And because it is written on our hearts, we know what is wrong when we do it. That, that conscience that we have, the little voice, the, the Jiminy Cricket, that is God's image in us, speaking to us, showing us that we have fallen short, all have fallen short of the glory of God. And so this is what makes repentance essential that we may restore communion with each other and with God, that we may be free from our guilt and from our shame. So now we know what's sin, a better understanding of sin. Now let's move to repentance. Repentance is not confessing or turning from the consequences of sin. 
This is very important. Repentance is not confessing or turning from damage done, the results of wrong actions, or even feelings of guilt or feelings when we get caught. We all know the politician's apology. I'm sorry that I got caught. Right? I'm not sorry for the thing I actually did. I'm sorry that you caught me doing it. Another example, and just an aside, this is a sports example. And if you know me at all, you know that sports is not my thing. But Dad and I were talking about this before, so uh, I think it applies. At the Century Tournament of Champions, which is a golf tournament, supposedly, in Hawaii. (laughs) It is in Hawaii. Supposedly, it's a golf tournament. Um, (laughs) One of the players was setting up for a putt, and he missed. And in missing it, he called himself a derogatory term. Now, it also happens that this was caught on a hot mic, a term that in any realm of our society is unacceptable. But he, st- he still used it. And of course, he was caught, so he came and he apologized. I'm sorry that you caught me. We remember Jesus' words that it's not what goes in that makes us unclean, but it's what's come out of the mouth that proceeds from the heart, and it is what defiles. Joel and I were talking And we were reminded that the words that we say, especially in anger or frustration, come out of our hearts. It's words that we use all the time. Often when we do something wrong, we feel the guilt of that wrong. But we have to make sure that when we apologize or when we turn from our sin, confess that sin, that we're not confessing the, I'm sorry that I feel this way because of my sin. Or, I'm sorry that you caught me doing this sin. These consequences, these feelings, these getting caught, these results of wrong actions are needed because they reveal the reality of our sin and our need for true repentance, but it is, again, not what we repent of. Repentance is not turning from the consequences of sin. Also, repentance is not a clearing of the slate without a change of behavior. Forgiveness does not come without a need to change. We remember what Miss Jennifer was talking about in our children's message. God still requires us to change and fruit of true repentance is a change of actions and a repair of the breach. Call to mind the story of Zacchaeus, the tax collector. Remember that he had taken more than what was required of a tax collector to put in his own pocket. That was normal for the time. But remember when he met with Jesus, how he turned from his sin and told Jesus that all who I've taken from, I will pay back. And I will not only pay back what is owed, but I will pay back four times more than I took. 
True repentance, the fruit of true repentance, brings a change in behavior and repairs to the breach. A word that you could use for this that has political connotations, but I just want to take it as a definition. Reparations. Repairing of the breach. So, repentance is not confessing the consequences. Repentance is not the clearing of the slate with no change of behavior. So the question is, what is true repentance? Repentance is turning away from sin and turning to God. Acts 3.19, repent therefore and turn to God so that your sin may be wiped out. The Greek word, Joel brings up this word often, the Greek word for repentance is the word metanoia. And it has the connotation of turning, turning in a different direction. But throughout the biblical understanding of repentance, I want to bring out three aspects. First of all, there is a confession aspect. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We must admit that we are wrong before we can ever receive forgiveness. In recovery programs, they tell us that the first step in fixing the problem is admitting that you have one. And so the same thing here, we must confess both verbally to one another and to God our sins so that we may receive forgiveness. Confession. The second is a sorrow for sin. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation and brings no regret, but worldly grief produces death. It is not only that we must confess our sins, but it is also that we must know that they are wrong and feel sorry that we ever took part in it. We broke relationship with one another in our sin. We broke relationship with God. And when we have this godly grief, we can begin to actually turn from our sin, turn from our own brokenness and to seek God. Confession, sorrow for sin, and of course, in the very root of the word, turning. We must confess we are wrong. We must say we are sorry and we feel our sorrow in our own hearts. And third, we must actually turn away from sin. Because what good is confessing sin? What good is being sorry about it if you don't actually stop doing it? Just as Miss Jennifer said again, if I hurt you, I say I'm sorry, and I come back the next day and do the exact same thing, how do you know that I'm really sorry? You're more likely not to accept an apology the next time. So it isn't actually turning away from sin and turning to God that we can find forgiveness. This involves every aspect of our person. It involves our heart. Our hearts must be changed and turned from sin. 
Our minds must turn from sin. Our actions, as we said in Zacchaeus' case, we must actually show that we are sorry through our words, actions, our deeds. Now, of course, repentance is not an end to itself. As if we were only meant to grieve and feel sorry for ourselves and beat ourselves, oh, how bad I am. But repentance leads to freedom from sin, to ultimate forgiveness. Our understanding of forgiveness is so important because it rounds out these three concepts and it shows us how we may be free from those things which enslave us. Sin, repentance, forgiveness. Forgiveness is not waiting for the axe to fall. I often hear and I've read people talk about God in this way. I've repented of my sin, but you know God is up there and he has lightning bolts. And if I do something bad again, he's going to strike me down this time because I'm not good enough to do this. We have turned God into an indignant unfair, unrighteous judge who only asks for repentance so that he can hold it against us, hold the axe over our head, waiting for it to drop at the next sin. Forgiveness really is not this, I forgive you, but next time it'll be worse. But forgiveness is a restoration It is a restoration of our communion with God and our communion with each other. If we think that forgiveness is only on an individual level, we will forget, we will will have wrong relationship, and we don't understand the true biblical meaning. Forgiveness works on both levels, the individual, my own sin, my own brokenness, but it also is on our communal brokenness, the systems and the powers and the principalities that we are involved in that are sinful. We need to repent as communities for those same actions, for those same systems, and work for the restoration of our communities through the forgiveness bought by God. In forgiveness, we are cleansed from all guilt and the penalty of sin, and we are freed from shame, the shame that the world puts on us and the shame that we feel in and of ourselves from our own consciences. Romans 8, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Now, even as forgiven people, we still sin. We still live in a broken world that has not been restored and made perfect as it will be on the last day. But this sin no longer has control over our actions. It no longer, as the Bible says, reigns in our bodies. But we are truly free. We can be slaves to sin no more. 
Now here's the bad news. The very sin, the very brokenness that requires repentance and forgiveness is the same sin that keeps us from seeing our need for repentance and forgiveness. Our sin is our scales over our eyes, the hardness of our hearts that keeps us from freedom, keeps us from the freedom from sin and death. It keeps us from freedom of communion with our Creator. And I want to stress this, no matter how many self-help books we read, no how many podcasts we listen to, no matter how many minutes we meditate or set our intentions, we cannot, by our own sheer will, keep from sin. It is a power that we do not have within ourselves. But we need not fear. The good news is this, though our sin is great, we have a great Savior, Jesus Christ. For our sake he became sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He did what we could never do. He kept the fullness of God's commands. He was sinless, and yet he took our sins onto himself. He bore our iniquities, and he was nailed to the cross. He gave his own life up willingly for our sakes. He suffered and died that we may live. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us. And it is in the resurrection which we still celebrate in this Easter tide, the resurrection which was the final amen against our sin, against our brokenness, against our failings, it is there that God said, it is finished, amen. We are free from sin in Jesus Christ. And it is when we put our trust in him that we may partake of the forgiveness bought by his blood. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, now I'm found was blind, but now I see. Amen.